Questions, comments, thoughts, more um, direction we could take this on? So, whatever. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned that you started in college. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, um, you know, what was the impetus for that exactly? I mean, how did you, were there other people doing it? How did you become conscientized? What was going on in Valdosta State? Um, you know, I, I, I've tried to trace that back myself to try, like, what was the, you know, the, did I have an epiphany that this is my, this is my calling? I think it was um, probably deeper than that. It, I think that we collectively, and certainly me personally, was looking for, okay, it sounds a bit hokey, a form of like universal love, something that we're, we're, we, we, I identified with kids that are being bullied because I felt like people innately want to be treated uh, with respect and dignity and validated in, 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 in a safe place. Um, and through my own personal experiences, um, I aligned with that. And rather than taking it out on myself or I started to kind of see general, general conditions that was like, this isn't just me. This isn't something I'm experiencing in isolation. This is something that we kind of share in common, that people wanted to be treated fairly. Uh, you know, people see other people doing wrong and they, they generally want something to be done about that. Um, the Iraq war was happening, or this is Clinton's war. This was the enforcement of the no-fly zones, which was a low-grade war under Bill Clinton that wasn't officially declared. Uh, and they were just 24-7 bombing northern and southern Iraq and leaving unspent uh, munitions or bombs uh, that had not exploded that were then leaking depleted uranium into the um, water supply and it was leading to astronomically high rates of um, infant mortality and birth defects and I printed off pictures of uh, infants and I put them on the walls of our hallway uh, I refused to stand up for the Pledge of Allegiance I mean, way before Kaepernick way before I was like Trailblazer. No, there's a lot of people doing it. And um, I don't know, Tina. Um, I mean, again, it started off as, I guess, self-expression, but then it kind of molded into, like, it's not about me. You know, so I stopped, as you can tell now, by nature, I've been forced to stop wearing mohawks. But I was stopped wearing mohawks <laughs> early on and dyeing my hair funky colors and stuff. Not that I didn't want to be, you know, you know, I don't care what the jocks think. It was more like, I don't want any other impediments between me and, like other ordinary working people. Like, I don't want it to be about me, okay? You're not following me as your leader. I'm trying to learn from you. I'm trying to teach you how to do it, you know? So, um, Sal Alinsky uh, is another famous organizer you can read about. He told people that. You know, he trained, this is during the counterculture, so it's like, cut your hair off and cut your sideburns off. That It's not about your, you know, uh, your peace movement. This is about you know, building power, the grassroots. Yeah, thanks. Questions? I kind of have a question or, or something to say, which you may or may not like, but... No, 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 just please. I, I'm, well, I, I'm, I know I'm controversial at times. <laughs> so I come from a socialist country, and I'm very much behind everything that you're saying, but I've also kind of seen the downside to the unions, 
situation in that I used to work in cancer production and um, at a particular venue that I'm not going to mention, basically most of the labor is done with the union. Mm -hmm. And as a production manager, I was basically babysitting these people. Yeah. Um, which is what it felt like. <laughs> I've worked in other venues where I didn't have to work with people from the union. Sure. And people actually just did their jobs, whereas, I'm sorry to say, but a lot of the people from the union were trying to do absolute minimum that mm -hmm. they could do and get as many breaks as they could and I mean really it wasn't a good experience as a, a manager. I can imagine from your perspective I understand and um, do you mind sharing what country? This from? is here in Atlanta. This it's, is an Atlanta venue. I'm guessing Atlanta. you probably know which one by now. Probably. It's the only one that uses uh, I, I, I don't. I don't. <laughs> well um, there's a lot to that, and I would say that, um, and this is in no way, a pro, I'm careful my, my response isn't directed at your own lived experience, because I, I can't dispute that, because that's your experience. What I would say that um, there's been a lot of money over generations from elites um, into um, institutions of higher education, business schools, et cetera that teach um, not just, you know, business theory, but like there's some embedded values that are in there, okay? And what we see often, just in general in our economy, is this concept that um, you ought to just hustle, work hard, work till you fall out. That's a value in and of itself, that working all the time is good. There's a company called WeWork. I don't know if you're... And they're promoting this ethic amongst millennials and other people of like, follow your passion, work till you can't work anymore, collapse at your laptop, you know, that's the dream, is you're pursuing this endeavor. Well, over time, if you're a 50 or 60 year old person, okay, and you've been working the same job for that amount, for a few years, or even if you've been bounced around, you may feel like the efficacy of your work, the return for your labor, has never been matched. Like you've been working hard your whole life and you're still barely scraping by. You still have no savings. You're still insecure financially. The system then has not, it doesn't incentivize anymore going the extra mile. Okay, so people can get jaded through that process. People can get disillusioned about their ability to go up the economic ladder. Okay? You often see the young person that goes into a job or that's super ambitious and the company knows that's management material because they're always trying to impress people go up. Okay? And the older workers there is like, or middle-aged workers like, I'm not kissing anymore, bud. I'm not brown-nosing anybody. I'm just here. I get paid by the hour. I'm just doing this. And that's why, because even if I go the extra mile, they won't appreciate it. So there's a lot of built-in disincentives to that. What I find a lot of capitalist firm and other most corporations managed through not through incentives which are certainly a method like bonuses and stuff okay which are a problem in and of itself um, but through fear the concept of at-will employment okay in this country goes back to the doctrine that flowed from uh, master-slave relationships it's actually a fact in in case law the definition of at-will employment, have you heard of this phrase before? Every private sector job in the nation is an at-will at job. 
think of fire at will. It means that no policies or procedures in their handbook are sacred or legally binding, that your job is not uh, protected. And unless it's, unless you're fired for a federally protected status, race, sex, national origin, okay, there's a few others, religion, you can be fired for anything at any time. I don't like your shoelaces. I don't like your attitude. I don't, you're treating me differently than other people. It's not against the law. You can't go hire the most high power law firm to get back. So my experience in that as an anecdote would be, you may look at a very efficient operation that's non-union and the workers are busy as they can be, but if you stop and talk to those workers about how they feel about their jobs, about how they feel about their lives, how they feel about their prospects, you might find people that are running around scared, that are afraid that if they stop, they'll be gone. I'm gonna give you two examples real quick. Coca-Cola down in College Park. Um, Coca-Cola's a major employer here. Around the country, they're very heavily unionized, or union, coincidentally, not here. Um, they have a facility in Sullivan Road in College Park. They pay the warehouse workers by the case. Okay, not by the hour. So what does that encourage workers to do? Boom, 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 boom. Okay, we're great. 32-year-old man working as fast as he can, okay? The production was picking up. He had his name on the wall as the fastest picker. Felt proud of himself. Halfway through his shift one summer, he collapsed with cardiac arrest. Face down, concrete floor. His coworkers start to gather. Supervisors just come over and say, everybody back to work. We'll call an ambulance. Ambulance comes. They ruled them dead on arrival at the time they showed up. The workers weren't informed of that until after their shift. Why? Because if we tell you of the death of a coworker, it's going to impact your production. That the production pace in and of itself probably forced him beyond his limit. It was structured in the way that they do it. In sanitation, they pay those guys by the can too. So every load that they pick up, they're incentivized to like pick up as many cans. Well, if you're driving a big truck, you need to be worried not just about that can, but about the people that are crossing the road in front of you, the cars next to you. So if you're constantly racing for that next bucket, okay, you're not thinking about safety. So the counter to the argument of, of do workers work harder or are we less efficient when we have capitalism versus socialism, I think that we need a, it's, it's a, such a complicated question because I think human, what motivates humans can, can, can be re reassessed. Um, I don't think fear is the motive that we should guide our economy. I think there could be other incentives that we can get people. And, and other marks and other people, and certainly you even look in scripture and the Bible, there's something innate about humans and creating production, like, like making something. I don't, I don't envision if people got a, a universal income or whatever, that people would be sitting doing nothing. I think that there's so many drivers in human, uh, in our culture and human nature to make us want to do stuff. And so we need to find ways and environments that inspire people um, in a dignified way to say, we can do this together, um, even if it's some, some uh, menial task. Uh, Dr. King, 
April 4th, 1968, talking to a room full of sanitation workers, to, or April 3rd, 1968, the day before he was murdered, assassinated. He said, even if your lot in life is to be a street sweeper, this is often misused by conservatives, by the way. He said, even if your lot in life is uh, being a street sweeper, do the best job as a street sweeper that you can do. Take pride in what you do. Because every job, all dignity has labor. And that's a, that's a sweeping statement. But he was talking to pastors in there too. And he was using the Good Samaritan parable about, are you going to stop and help this man in need or are you going to walk by him? Because you look at sanitation work and, you, and they're picking up, they're, they're, at the time, some of these men were coming home covered in maggots. They had all kinds of feces, hypodermic needles, sharp objects. They're out there doing the work that nobody else wants to do. But if we didn't have them, his point was, we'd need a lot more doctors and nurses in hospitals because they protect the public health. So where does the value of labor come from? If I'm in a um, traditional heterosexual relationship and I said, as the man, I'm the breadwinner, you stay home and you take care of my family, take care of everything at home. But there's no compensation for that. Our, as a society, we valued male labor. We didn't value the labor that made that possible, right? So there's something broken about that system that rewards astronomically obscene amount of salary to the CEOs, right, who have quadrupled their annual income in the past 10 to 15 years, not a long period of time. While average workers adjusted for inflation in the United States are making what we made in the mid-1970s. So um, my assertion with that is that it's broken. And I'm not hearkening back to some uh, experiment with, quote, socialism in some other parts of the uh, world that I've studied, that I've uh, had family members that have lived, uh, had family members in East Germany. Um, so I've seen some of that. What I would say is that none of those existed in a global uh, economy that we have now. And... Um, there's more potential for us to be in a, uh, to view the world less in country by country and more as a, as a global force. And capitalism has created that. So that collectively, in order to address famine and abject uh, poverty and the lack of access to quality food in sub-Saharan Africa, we're gonna have to distribute resources around the world to make that happen. So, um, it's going to take more than a 2020 election <laughs> to have a revolution. But uh, thank you for the question. And, and I, you know, I don't take anything like that to be, um, I think it's healthy. I think, you know, uh, it's a lot better talking uh, than debating on Facebook or somewhere else. So um, unfortunately, we just don't have a lot of um, spaces that give us opportunity to have political discourses about big, big ideas, you know. Um, I got some of the workers I represent and say, Ben, you lost me with that socialism stuff. I love you, bro, but man. I was like, man, you need to stop listening to Rush Limbaugh. There's a lot more out there. <laughs> Driving around, it's like mad. You know, you know it's like, it's like pe the people you're listening to are the people you're, you're listening to right-wing media that's been funded by the corporations that you're mad at. <laughs> and they can't get the, they can't get the connection. So. Cover a lot of ground, y'all. Other questions, thoughts? Uh, I have a question sort of bouncing off of what you just went into. Mm -hmm. um, so my girlfriend comes from actually really close to Manning, Georgia, a yes. uh, very poor community in Hogansville. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. And so we've been spending a lot of time down there lately and a very, very conservative family. And mm -hmm. we have, we're, we're both anarchists.
Marxist communists, right. um, and we struggle to engage in conversations with them where we feel like they're very anti-leftist, mm -hmm. but the politics that they do have do not uh, do not help them. That they're very uh, they watch a lot of Fox News. Um, they're very anti-leftist, and they we struggle to to encourage them to see like class solidarity or how they have more common commonalities with immigrant workers mm. and black workers than they do with these elites who are running the company. How, how, do we, how do we encourage people to engage in that kind of class solidarity as opposed to investing in essentially white supremacy? Yeah. Well, I'm going to die trying to figure that one out. <laughs> uh, and I've been, I, I'm wrapped with it constantly. Um, I was down in Noonan, and I'm, of all places for them to pick, I mean, I got in a lot of trouble in Noonan. It wasn't political. Um, and uh, I hadn't been back down there for a long time. And when the neo-Nazi rally that happened just this past year was announced there, I was like, did they know where I live and pick me out? It's about me? No, it's not about me. Um, but I went down there, and, 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 and BuzzFeed, of all people, came up to me and like put a microphone in front of me because I guess I just stood out. I wasn't wearing a mask. And they were like, why is this like, you know, dude with a southern accent with the bald head sticking out here? Why is it? Are you on the right side? You know? And I said, look, um, I'm not out here necessarily to protest Nazis, I'm, uh, which I find completely uh, odious and, uh, and I don't believe in free hate speech. I was out here to point out about what our real common problems are. We don't have savings. People are, are deep, deep, deep in debt. We're leaving nothing to anybody to inherit. We're making less than what we've ever made. We're feeling desperately isolated and angry at each other. Um, while there is more to go around than there ever has been in the history of the world times 10. There's no scarcity of resources. And we know that about food, about how much food waste we have. It's also true about uh, health care. It's also true about any of our other basic needs that we are resenting each other because we're so desperate to provide for our basic needs. So I didn't quote like Maslow's hierarchy and needs or whatever, but you know, so, I mean, if we, if we, we can't have political conversations about how to live harmoniously amongst each other if we're hungry. Because that's not, you know, we don't have the ability to philosophize about a better world if we're chasing the carrot. You know what the carrot, you know, the carrot that used to dangle out in front of mules, get them the, okay, so the mule be trying to nibble on that carrot all day and meanwhile they're just hoeing row after row. So my thing with them, with, in my own family, is, well, tell me about your experience. So what has work been like for you? What is, uh, are you going to be able to have much of a savings? Or The more people talk about their own experience, the more that you can try to intercede that with, well, that's a lot like this. You don't, what would it be like if one of your family members was just taken, you didn't even know where they went? That would be horrible, wouldn't it? ever happen? Well, people come in here, they're working, um, and they just get swept up because of their surname, and all of a sudden they don't know where their five-year-old child is at? That'd be awful, wouldn't it? So empathy starts from your own experience. Um, and with working people, fortunately, we can't necessarily teach what it's like to be a person of color or to live this other experience, but I think there's enough there for most people to be able to start to develop a sense of empathy. Now, what we're doing, though, in these conversations is cutting against every cultural force that's out there. 
Antonio Gramsci was an Italian Marxist that was imprisoned during Mussolini, and he was the first, he wrote tremendously, he was like 21 years old, he wrote tremendously in prison about media, and this is late 1920s, and he's talking about how the ruling elites utilize cultural forces to teach us values that then make it harder for us to come together. So what are some of the cultural forces in our society that make it hard for people to come together? Like what are some of the things that were that are ingrained everywhere that te that 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 undermine or inhibit our ability to see our commonality? Racism. What's that? Racism. Racism's one. Sexism. Yeah, yeah. Those are those are uh, seem to be, you know, uh, less overt these days, but what comes to my mind, and maybe for y'all, is this just, just this complete obedience and doctrine to this belief in the values of competition. Like, do whatever you got to do to get ahead. If you fail, whose fault is it? It's your fault. If they're failing, whose fault is it? It's their fault. Work harder, and if you're not succeeding, it's because you're not applying yourself, you're not believing in yourself. Are you depressed? Here's a self-help book, not a collective help book, okay? If you're in debt, you spent too much, okay? You didn't do what I did. When you saw Brett Kavanaugh interrogated or interviewed in his confirmation hearings, it captured exactly the attitude of this elite sense of entitlement that they have where he says I busted my butt in his privileged private school I busted my butt I worked my way through Yale I came up they believe that they're self-made they believe they hit a home run they were born on third base okay so those beliefs are then communicated out to all the rest of us and then internalized and then we have people with higher rates of suicide we have higher rates of, of, of domestic violence we have higher rates of all kinds of other social deviant actions that are happening because we're internalizing all this stuff that is actually structural and we saw with the black power movement we saw with every wave of the feminist movement women's movement it's like no you matter that's what that's saying that's what those movements say, and, that, and it really came out with BLM, you know, literally. You matter just as way you are right now. You don't need to be anything else. You don't need to change anything else. You don't, have, you don't need to apologize for who you are. You matter the way you are right now. And for workers, if, you're, if you tell that to somebody, our society tells you, don't be satisfied. Keep hustling. Keep grinding, you know. Culturally, whether it's a TED Talk or somewhere else, we're not taught values of collective empathy, cooperation, decision-making. We're taught competition for yourself, by yourself. That in and of itself is a value. So we have, in, in union organizing, I don't talk about it in philosophical terms. I talk about it in just real terms. Like, okay, you can't just be a milk driver campaign. We've got to get those dock workers involved. We got to get those people on the other side of the building that don't you don't normally see. We got to go wall to wall. We can't be selective about who we reach out to. So I was a bit frustrated in this last governor's election, for instance, when it says, "Okay, the Republicans are going to get all the white people, 
and the Democrats are going to get everybody else and whites that have a conscience. Okay. Well, of course Brian Kemp was going to rig the election. Of course he was going to rig the election. My only thought would be you need to appeal to more than just 51%. You need to appeal to a supermajority. Give, give these people something big, bold idea to break them away from that shit. You know, so that you have enough of a cushion. It, I mean, it's easier said in hindsight, but you know, it's like you want you want to appeal to people that are different than you on the surface. Um, in teams, in team sports, in the military, in in the Bible, and other sources, we're taught collective values. Okay, you think of the best halftime speech or whatever, whether it's a basketball game, soccer, whatever. It's like. Do your job because you're part of a collective, and we can only win if we all collectively do this. So I think that that carries over in, um, in organizing also the kind of society that we want to live in. So. Um. Okay, we have time for maybe two more questions. Or accusations, comments, thoughts, other things you'd like to raise. So this goes back a little bit, but you were, like, when you're talking about, like, how CEOs, like, have this concept of, like, what it, like, what their company should look like, do you have any people within your organization, or, like, do you work with any people that, like, try to go to the CEOs and, like, change the way they're doing things as well, or do you just, like, work with, like, the workers? Um, so, generally, a lot of the, the executives do sign off at some point on this. Um... They send their attorneys. Uh, what I find is that there's so many layers of uh, bureaucracy that shield these people from reality um, that they're they don't view it as part of their jobs to understand what workers do. You saw uh, Undercover Boss. Have you seen that? Where they, they dress up as a rank and file worker and stuff like that. It's like I didn't know that you were peeing in bottles instead of going to the bathroom. Like wow, that's really shocking. Because it's such an anomaly for people that are in that position, even if they claim that once upon a time I was just like you, you know. Um, power corrupts. There should not be somebody with such obscene amounts of concentrated power. It's antithetical to democracy. I, I wish them the best in terms of them operating, uh, and they should be compensated fairly and probably the highest paid of their other entities. Fine. You know, we're not trying to have some sort of like leveling of all, there's no differences in skills and talent. Of course there is. Of course there is. But it's such, so outpaced from the average worker that it's created an unsustainable system. And you'll hear people that are deeply loyal and invested in the capitalist system very worried. I mean, that's what liberalism is, essentially. We've got to give these people more. If they, we don't give them more, they're going to come for, all, for it all. You know what I'm saying? So we need to give them Medicare for all. If they want Medicare for all, give it to them. You want to raise them on way? Give it to them before they start asking for our, our yachts and our land. So that's where the two parties come in. It's like one said, no, we need to concede more. And one said, no, we want more. Okay. So um, uh, it's difficult not to wax moralistic about it and condemn those people as evil. I don't view them as evil. Um, I view them as amoral. Um, they are taught to conquer, they're the killers, and they're ruling, and so, um, uh, fortunately, those, there are some of them that are breaking away, and you see the, uh, uh, who's the Berkshaw Hathaway guy, uh, Warren Buffett and others, that kind of 
can see the writing on the wall and maybe maybe they have a little bit you know they got a little heart on them you know so it's not about the people you know um, it's about the structure so uh, well you can find out all and more that you want if you even want to know more about me I've shared all this stuff what's in my head uh, you, I'm, you can search uh, Teamster 728 Ben Spate we're on uh, all over the internet um, and uh, the things that we've been doing for, uh, for several years and, and uh, you know I will stop every time Tina asks me to come up here and, and talk to y'all and do it I uh, stick out like a sore thumb on this campus but that's okay I appreciate you guys having me here um, yeah I think Scott wouldn't get away with it because y'all would stop him. Yeah. Y'all would y'all would stop him. I, I'm, I'm confident of that. But as Tina was saying, um, under our very weak labor law system in this country, when you have one of these, which sets your hourly wage rates and what wage increases, and also sets an apparatus to resolve disputes. So if somebody was fired unjustly, they wouldn't have to hire an attorney. There's a built-in process. This essentially achieves labor peace. So in exchange of this and that all the changes that we got and the rights that we got, we tell them that we're not going to walk off the job on them. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Um, but uh, public sector workers in Georgia, we just saw the second year in a row West Virginia teachers just went on strike. Yeah. Well, last time, every all 55 counties in West Virginia, that's not a I'm blue. I'm from West Virginia. That, well, as you know, West yeah. Virginia, aside from, uh, well, I don't even call Joe Manchin a Democrat, but uh, it's a very, very pro-Trump environment. And, and this, again, breaks my heart that probably Hillary Clinton didn't go there. But whatever. Uh, they voted for Trump. They also went on two years in a row in a legal strike against the Republican-controlled state government. And last year they went on strike and got historic raises illegally. They went on a legal strike. These are public school teachers, so they're not really known for their radicalism. But they, they went through years of having to supply their own supplies for school and kids that shredded books and holes in the ceiling and stuff like that. I mean, uh, exposed to elements and the rest of it. They went on strike. They won. And they stayed out longer to get the bus drivers a raise. And that was awesome. Nobody told them how to do that. Nobody taught them how to do that. They did that through just talking, learning, closed Facebook groups, etc. This year, the GOP state legislature was going to put through a school privatization bill. And instead of about money now and about school size, uh, uh, classroom sizes, they went on strike for a political issue. Don't privatize our schools. They went on strike yesterday. They took the bill off. Uh, they, they took the bill out of the docket. They ain't debating that bill. They're not proposing the bill. So at a one-day strike in West Virginia, they saved public education in that state. And they did it illegally. But because there were so many of them and because they were so popular with the, with the communities, you lock one school teacher up, you're going to have a big problem on your hands, right? And that's what those sanitation workers did in Memphis at 68, those sanitation workers, on a legal strike. So,
A hundred years ago, I was called an economic terrorist. I'm, we're close to that now. I mean, so the, so yeah, our democracy is restricted to non-workplace expression for a reason. And where it has been protected in the workplace, it's been constantly undermined through the realities of working on the job. Grown men and women go to work every day, tough as they can be everywhere else, but when they get on the job, they're told, shut up, do what you're told. And the way to survive is to do it. So if you're on a job and you work in unsafe conditions or people berating you and you know that you can't say or do nothing about it, does that feeling go away? So you see a lot of angry <laughs> people driving home every day. <laughs> so yeah. how do you change that? Well, you start, to, you start to change it by taking small steps, by getting people to realize that their feeling is not unique to them. They have a shared experience with other people. You ask them, what are your top priorities? So I don't go in promising them the moon. I start off with some modest improvements. And an example from a group of workers just a couple weeks ago, we want the company to put on the heat. I'm wearing five layers of clothes right now in this warehouse. Could they put the heat on? So even talking about a union got the heat turned on for them. Because the company don't want to go to the next level, which is annual raises, affordable health insurance. So you start very basic. I've organized uh, mothers in communities of West Las Vegas to get speed bumps and crosswalks in front of elementary schools where young children were being hit by cars. I mean, getting a crosswalk. If you get a crosswalk and save a child's life, those mothers are going to be taught, we got a crosswalk, what's next? Okay? You're teaching people the, um, uh, again, the efficacy of their own labor. You know, like, you get results, you get the goods through struggle. So how do you communicate that to the people who actually make the change? Well, um, we confront them. Mm -hmm. So I, how you communicate it with the people that are affected by it directly is that you go talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, mm -hmm. away from prying eyes, away from management. So we literally go to people's homes. Another place to find workers where they hang out after work. A lot of times it's a convenience store. So it's another place that they may go to. But if we also um, ask workers to provide their addresses to each other, and we go talk to them at home so that we can speak in a safe environment. Often the spouse or other people are there so that we can engage in this conversation because you can't do it anywhere else because of the fear. Uh, but one-on-one -on -one communication is the key to organizing. I know we're running out of time, but I'll just say that don't use technology as a substitute but as a supplement for direct one-on-one -on -one organizing. You need to talk to people. They need to talk to you. They need to have some confidence in you. And when you confront power, you confront them with numbers, you use the element of surprise, you hit them when they need you the most, um, and you make very clear demands. Like you don't want 20 demands. It's better to make two demands. You know. um, and then when they say no, you need to be prepared to make their life very difficult, nonviolently. You've been listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. Audio engineer is China Wilson with assistance from Megan Simmons. And assistant audio engineer is Reagan Turner. Our music for the intro... Theme music is by Lance Eric Hagen with Aviva and the Flying Penguins with additional music by Paul Myrie.